Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a, is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital, wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Ta-da! Travel forward with us, 300 years into the future, to confront the greatest mystery ever to threaten mankind. We are aboard a huge starship called the Enterprise. This is the return of Captain Kirk. An alien object of unbelievable destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. Mr. Spock. I offer my services as science officer. Dr. McCoy. Scotty. And joining them on their mission, Commander Will Decker and Navigator Ilea. I'm sorry. That you left Delta IV? Or that you didn't even say goodbye? This, then, is the epic journey of the Starship Enterprise. Traveling to the outer limits of time and space to challenge a vast, living machine of destruction. The human adventure is just beginning. Star Trek, the motion picture. Ta-da, here we are. And listen, you know what? We just can't quit you, Star Trek, the motion picture. We did a year full of shows on, on, on that unjustly maligned film, culminating... A year ago, with you know a fabulous commentary track, if I do say so myself, that we did with Michael Sussman, 
And uh, and now for the 41st anniversary, one year later, we, we figured we had to do something on Star Trek to motion picture. We, we couldn't let the anniversary go by unnoted. It was either that or Pearl Harbor. And uh, so we decided uh, we'd bring on Preston Neal Jones. One that was a little more bloody. No, I'm joking. We, we brought on Preston Neal Jones, who's the author of the Return to Tomorrow Oral History of Star Trek Motion Picture, which is uh, basically, it's a fascinating story. He wrote this massive cover story for Cinefantastic back in 1979, and then it was never published. And for never years, everybody said, hey, when is that going to be published? When is that going to be published? And it never, it never was. Fred never... Uh, made it never got it into the production schedule. It's amazing that he didn't because it was really a license to print money. It would have done very well, and uh, eventually Clark, the publisher of Cinefantastic. Yeah, the, uh, thank you. Uh, and 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 then um, eventually um, our good friend uh, uh, Lucas Kendall, uh, along with Taylor White from Creature Features and Burbank, um, who had a uh, small press boutique press, uh, approached him about uh, publishing the book. They did a beautiful, beautiful trade paperback edition that recently went out of print, but now it's available again on Kindle. And we thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to them about the legacy of Star Trek, the motion picture. And of course, what's so interesting about Preston is that he was doing this contemporaneous with the making of the movie. So much of the coverage is after the fact and is filtered through the lens of... uh, uh, critique and you know what we know about Star Trek the motion picture and how it did and sort of you know all all, all the sort of um, uh, aftermath of its release but this was written during the time at which it was being made and uh, of course it was a very different time when publicists didn't you know control the world where basically they would let you talk to whoever you wanted and didn't try and control the story and their job was to facilitate access and not deny access and of course there were very few outlets and Cinefantastic at the time was one of the most respected uh, cinema journals uh, with a focus on genre uh, and there were very few of those there was certainly no internet but there was um, only a couple of of really respected uh, film and certainly very even fewer respected sci-fi magazines. I mean, there was Starlog, there were cash-ins like Fantastic Films, which, you know, was was particularly well-respected. There was the beginning of Omni, which was more of a science magazine. Uh, There was Questar, short-lived magazine devoted to uh, genre films. You know, after Star Wars came out, they they, there was was this explosion of these short-lived cash-in magazines. Yeah, Yeah. but Cinefantastic had been around since 71, and Starlog since 76, so those were the giants. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and anyway, uh, um, but it's it's astounding because, as you'll hear, um, the Star Trek The Motion Picture... Uh, story, which would have seemingly been a bestseller, um, was sidelined so that Fred could do a double issue on the Black Hole. No disrespect meant to the Black Hole, but it, it it's up there with one of the you know great bad decisions of all of all time. One of the great, really, really awful decisions. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for um, Fred. And I will tell you, I didn't say this during the podcast, but. You know, as you know, about 15 years ago, I bought Cinefantastic and I owned it for about 10 years until I sold it again. And um, one of the reasons I bought Cinefantastic, besides wanting to preserve the legacy of the late Fred Clark, was I wanted to get my hands on this freaking manuscript, you know, that I'd heard about and hadn't read. 
course, it wasn't in the files. I, I found a lot of other stuff in the files, a lot of correspondence regarding it, which I might put online uh, in concert with this episode in case anyone cares. But um, I the, the, the manuscript wasn't there, and it was heartbreaking because I really wanted to read it. <laughs> it well, was funny because I, I was just going to say, when we bought Cinefantastic, um, uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was really funny. It was Dave Williams and I, uh, who ended up being the editor, spent a lot of time in Chicago getting everything together. We went there, we bought the magazine, and, and we're going to bring everything out to, to Los Angeles. And it's amazing between the first time we were out there and bought the magazine and when we went back, how much had disappeared in the interim. There was a lot of stuff that suddenly was gone when we went back to meet the movers. And it was it was heartbreaking. A lot of one sheets, a lot of stuff from the files. I don't know where it went, but it certainly didn't come with us to Los Angeles. But I ended up eventually giving that entire collection to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So future scholars for you know will be able to you know uh, benefit from everything that's in that. And and we we need to do a show in the future on uh, the late great Fred Clark and Cinefantastic. It truly was a a titan of. Um, uh, cinematic journalism, genre journalism, took it very seriously, uh, broke amazing stories. You know, I wouldn't have the career I had without Fred Clark, so I'm deeply indebted to him. It got me got me going, you know, uh, being an entertainment journalist working for Cinefantastic was my film school, so I'm, I'm very grateful. So I'm glad we could, you know, cover this today and, uh, again, pay homage to a movie that we both love so much, Star Trek The Motion Picture, one that you have uh, done a remarkable job in terms of not only preserving but improving its legacy with the director's edition that you and Dave Fine and Mike Medicino uh, did. Uh, God, how many years ago is it now? Enough. Enough. And you know, look, I, I, I know, I know what the answer is, but I got to ask because otherwise people are going to be asking on Twitter. You know, it is the anniversary of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. People are very interested in the future of the director's edition. Um, is there any update since Dave Fine last updated us publicly at Comic Con during the Inglorious Trekspert panel about the fate of a new director's edition? Why don't we talk about that after we give our interview? Ooh, that means they got to sit through this whole interview. Good thinking. That's a cliffhanger. Okay, and now, without any further ado, archivist, curator, Film Score Monthly founder, Lucas Kendall, and the author of Return to Tomorrow, Preston Neal Jones. And here we are with Preston Neal Jones and uh, returning champion, Lucas Kendall. Guys, welcome uh, to Inglorious Experts. Always good to have Lucas, and welcome Preston to the show. You know, uh... It's uh, it's a thrill to talk to you because, of course, your book, Return to Tomorrow, uh, I, I can't think of a book, maybe other than the sequel, The Catcher in the Rye, that was so long a borning. <laughs> because, of course, for the, tell, tell us a little bit about the story. Uh, for those of us who either read Cinefantastic or worked for Cinefantastic, this was a legendary uh, white whale, the, the Star Trek The Motion Picture double issue that was advertised and never happened, although the infamous Black Hole double issue did. So, it, it, and, and that eventually uh, proved to be the foundation for your book. So tell us a little bit about how this all came about. Well, I think uh, legendary uh, is the appropriate uh, word to give it. In fact, uh, the longest time, the only actual evidence of it uh, was a, a website that someone had about... Uh, 
I can't remember, I'm sorry, the gentleman's name or the exact name of his site, but it was basically devoted to the lost treks. Uh, and my project was one of them. And so uh, he asked me to write a little precis of, of what you, basically asked me this question that you just asked me. I had uh, written uh, for uh, Cine Fantastique. I did a cover story about uh, one of my heroes, Hans J. Salter, who wrote the music for the old Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, and Mummy movies at Universal in the 40s. And uh, Luke, uh, Fred Clark, the editor, had previously done special issues in 1977. Uh, these were double issues devoted to big screen, big science fiction movies. The first one was Star Wars. The second one was Close Encounters. And in both instances, to fill up the double thickness of two issues in one, uh, the uh, author researcher uh, did about 20 interviews and then uh, lavishly illustrated, as only Cinefantastique could do it, these uh, interviews were presented. Now, I don't know um, why uh, Fred uh, turned to me. He might have, for all I know, uh, maybe he may have had a falling out uh, with the fellow who had done those previous two issues. But I got a call out of the blue from him, the, from his uh, headquarters in Oak Park, Illinois. And he said, uh, well, you know, they're uh, coming out with uh, this new Star Trek movie. How would you like to do the double issue uh, for that? And I thought for a second, I thought, I'll get to talk to Robert Wise. I'll get to talk to Jerry Goldsmith. I'll get to talk to Isaac Asimov. I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to do it. And uh, that's uh, how it began. Uh, in the event, I uh, ended up interviewing 60 people, obviously three times more than they were used to. And uh, also, uh, my format uh, preference wasn't to do Q&A, uh, what I like to do is just take the A's, eliminate my Q's, and uh, edit all the A's together as if you were sitting in a conference room with all of these 60 people, each of them taking turns telling the story in their own words, chronologically, the saga of how the film came to be, pre-production, production, and post-production. Uh, so uh, Fred uh, was very happy about the material I was sending him. He made his uh, readers happy by promoting it. He used it, in fact, as a, a selling point uh, to get new uh, subscriptions one year. And then uh, for uh, various uh, reasons, uh, it, starting with the fact, I have to confess that uh, it was a long, mighty labor for me. I had a death in the family that uh, took me out of uh, commission for a while. and. Uh, I had uh, 60 interviews to try and uh, turn into one long story. And uh, despite uh, having uh, promoted it, Fred never did uh, print uh, the material. I had been sending him a lot of uh, wonderful illustration material I'd gotten from most of the people I'd interviewed. So I know he was very serious about doing it. Uh, and uh, for years after that, he kept telling me that he fully intended at some point to do it, just it wasn't going to be uh, in time to synchronize with the release of the film the way those other two earlier special double issues had been. Uh, but uh, as we now know, uh, 
He never did get to do it. And uh, because he had promoted it, though, people knew it existed. And that's how it had acquired uh, certain legendary aspects among uh, fandom. At, well, let's let, let's talk for a second about what that initial experience was like on set. Uh, obviously, you, you talked to about 60 people uh, over the course of production. And what's so interesting, of course, about the article, which eventually was published many years later um, as uh, Return to Tomorrow, is that it's it's a contemporaneous telling of the story. It's not looking back at Star Trek, the motion picture, through the lens of 40 years later, but actually uh, it, the words of the people who were making it at the time. So what was that experience like for you being on the set? How many set visits did you do? What were your impressions of the sets and the people you talked to? Well, you're very right that it was different from uh, something done reflected in tranquility and retrospect. That describes my first book that I had done about the Night of the Hunter, the 1955 classic, because when I was interviewing people who worked on in front of the camera and behind the camera on that film, it was the 70s, and that was decades after that film had been done. Now, I have to clarify one thing. I wasn't around for production. They were already in post-production, but uh, they were definitely still working on the picture when I was brought on to the project. And uh, I uh, had uh, the uh, help of uh, the uh, publicity department at uh, Paramount. Uh, they helped set up interviews for me with, uh, uh, initially with the actors because they were the most free at that point. They were frantically trying to work on special effects uh, to get the film ready to open on December 7th, 1979. Now, the cast opinion of the film have evolved with time and in retrospect, but you were talking to them prior to the film being released. What was that like? And were you interviewing them on the lot? Were you doing it by telephone? Were you meeting them for lunch? What, what, how, what, what was that process in terms of talking to the ensemble? That process was all of the above. Uh, it started, as I say, with the actors because they didn't have any work to do on the picture. They were very free. Sometimes that meant that uh, and the, uh, public a publicist at the studio would set up a meeting between the three of us. So I could talk to, for instance, uh, Walter Koenig uh, that way, uh, or um, uh, DeForest Kelly. Uh, other times it would be a lunch uh, that I would have. Uh, we met, uh, I met uh, William Shatner at his favorite restaurant uh, in the Valley, and uh, thereby Hank's a whole separate story, which was uh, fun to recall. Um, and uh, I also, uh, once the picture was finally released and everybody was breathing a sigh of relief because uh, um, I, I suppose everybody uh, listening knows, but I, won't, I shouldn't really assume that uh, they were under terrible pressure during the uh, time that I was brought in to start the chronicling the thing because uh, they had hired a special effects crew which had won awards for their work in television commercials, but which had never done a feature film before. And uh, after about a year, uh, those uh, people had to be let go, which meant that uh, Paramount uh, had to uh, finish all of the effects for Star Trek, basically two years worth of work in one year's worth of time. Yeah. 
of course, the question is, you know, the studio at the time was having all these issues with um, uh, Abel and, and and Trumbull and Dykstra coming in to replace them and obviously cost overruns. How, how much of this stuff were you privy to at the time and how much, you know, uh, pushback were you getting? Obviously, the studio publicists, you know, don't want you reporting on that or don't want it to get to you that this is a, a troubled production. You know, so how much of that were you dealing with in your reporting uh, in terms of your awareness and also how you were addressing it, um, you know, in your interviews? Well, I have to say that I don't remember ever being aware of any pushback and, uh it's entirely possible that uh, the publicity people were just used to uh, uh, promoting a, a picture and putting it in its best light, uh, no matter what kind of a production it had had. Uh, they, so I, I talked to the actors, and it was already a troubled production before they fired the special effects crew. Uh, it was a troubled production because they went into production so fast without having a finished script. They were uh, revising pages, uh, not only uh, daily, but sometimes hourly. Uh, so it, it was a, a, a hellacious uh, challenge uh, from the get-go. Uh, so you, you alluded to an interesting story with Shatner. Tell us a little bit about what that, uh, what that was. Well, um, this was uh, his favorite healthy restaurant in the Valley, and uh, Shatner, as you, you may uh, remember, uh, and everybody else who worked on the picture, uh, was in the pink of condition. They had all worked hard to get back into physical shape because it was supposed to be uh, only a, the story was supposed to be set only a short time after the time of the three-year, uh, the three-year, five-year mission on NBC. I'm replacing you as captain of the Enterprise. You'll stay on as executive officer, a temporary grade reduction to commander. You personally are assuming command? Yeah. May I ask why? My experience. Five years out there dealing with unknowns like this. My familiarity with the Enterprise, its crew. Admiral, this is an almost totally new Enterprise. You don't know her a tenth as well as I do. That's why you're staying aboard. sorry, Will. No, Admiral. I don't think you're sorry. Not one damn bit. I remember when you recommended me for this command. You told me how envious you were and how much you hoped you'd find a way to get a Starship command again. Well, sir, it looks like you found a way. So he was still on his best behavior, uh, even though the picture was shot, because he still had to uh, do, promote uh, the picture in interviews. So we still uh, needed to stay in shape. And uh, so we were enjoying a meal. And uh, then at one point, uh, the waiter came back to us and said, uh, would you gentlemen like any dessert? And uh, Mr. Shatner looked across the table at me and said, do you like chocolate? And I confessed that I did. And so Shatner, uh, with a knowing look to the waiter, said, you know what to bring. So apparently this was Shatner's favorite confection that uh, they brought. Uh, and when it came, I had never seen such a big plate of light and dark chocolate in my life. 
um, all in semi-liquefied form. It was just luscious. And uh, I was enjoying it. And at one point, uh, Mr. Shatner uh, picked up his fork and just allowed himself one sinful bite of his favorite dessert. Well, it has no calories if you eat your uh, guest's uh, dessert. It's, it's not It's not fattening under the circumstances. A scientific so concept, if ever I've heard one. Exactly. So when you, when you started uh, interviewing, had they already done this visual effects transition? Uh, had they started? Yes. They, yes, they had. Uh, it was shortly uh, before the uh, beginning of the second year. Right. Uh, and their due dates. Uh, that, I mean, just the fact that the due date was such a bugger, that was part of the pressure that was on also from day one, because uh, the studio had made a deal with the distributors promising them that in December of 1979, on the 7th of the month, there would be a Star Trek movie for them to put in their theaters. And uh, this put a lot of money in their coffers, money which they would have to forfeit if, God forbid, they failed uh, to deliver that picture on that day. So that was uh, one of the biggest problems right uh, from the beginning. That informed everything that followed. Uh, th that put pressure on every aspect of the film, pre-production, production, and post-production. Was there anyone you wanted to talk to specifically that you didn't have access to, either because of lack of availability or that the studio didn't get you for the article? Um. I would have, I would have loved to have talked to Doug Trumbull as well as John Dykstra. Uh, that uh, didn't happen. Um, and uh, in retrospect, I think it would have been nice to talk to um, Richard Taylor, who had been the uh, assistant of Alan Abel. Uh, Abel was Robert uh, Abel, yeah. that first uh, effects crew. Um, but uh, other than that, uh, I, uh, I'm very pleased uh, with all the people that I got to uh, spend time with. I, don't, I honestly don't think there's ever been a major studio production that's had uh, input in its history recounting of so many participants uh, behind and in front of the camera as, uh, as this did. That, that's why I think that totally aside from people who are interested in science fiction movies in general or Star Trek in particular, I think anybody's interested in the big studio system at that time, the 70s and the 80s, uh, can learn a few things from reading the it's, book. It's interesting that um, uh, Richard Taylor, who you mentioned, um, was the only person from Abel's uh, group that actually got credit on the film. He was actually art director for Robert Abel's company. And he was the only person from them who got an actual credit. That's exactly why I wanted to, to talk to him. And I, I, and I also, the scuttlebutt was that he, uh, he was one of the good guys and uh, that he had done good work as best he could under difficult yeah. circumstances. When you went back to look at the manuscript when it was published finally after these many decades, which we'll talk to in a second because I want to ask Lucas about that. Um, but, my guardian uh, angel, yes. My what, 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 what surprised you the most uh, in, in reading the manuscript in terms of, because again, this was through the lens of 1979, the anticipation of having a hit motion picture that would change cinema forever. What... Um, what, what surprised you the most in going back to the manuscript and reading what people were saying at the time? 
Well, I can't say anything surprised me. Uh, God knows I had been over every word many a time and off putting it together. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the biggest surprise was finding where I buried it for a while when Lucas uh, contacted me and uh, said, um, you know, we're thinking of maybe celebrating the anniversary of Star Trek motion picture with some kind of a coffee table book. And I know that you wrote something it's for Cinefantastique and so on. And I had to tell him, well, it's, it's nobody's idea of a uh, coffee table book. It's a typewritten, typewritten. The manuscript is like about yay high and it's 1280 odd typewritten pages put together with scotch tape and rubber cement because I would take somebody's answer from one interview and put it on the page. Then I take another piece of another interview and put that on the page. And that's how the whole thing was literally assembled. <clears throat> uh, Lucas really was heroic in uh, transforming that once I finally did find the manuscript again into a digital 21st century uh, document. Well, Lucas, I want to ask you about that. What was sort of the origin for you getting involved? I mean, obviously, you used to write for Cinefantastic. You were aware of Cinefantastic. You were aware of this enigmatic, you know, much-anticipated article that never was published. How did you get involved in, you know, tracking down, uh, you know, Preston and actually publishing the book with Taylor White? And now, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh, it's out of print. However, you can buy it on Kindle. Uh, digitally, and uh, which is you know probably the best way to experience that hefty tome. So, what, 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 how do you know where, where do you enter the picture, Lucas? Well, I knew Preston because I was the publisher of Film Score Monthly, and I met you through Cinefantastique around 1991. Is that right? No, I, I know. Don't that. remember because I did yeah. the music yeah. sidebar for one Yeah, year. of course. Yeah. No, of course you covered all the next generation music right. for, uh, so, for Fred. Um, I, I was I found that web page where it said the famous lost Star Trek books. And then I got to this one. I was like, wait a minute, Preston, I know Preston. Uh, so I just I think I called or emailed and said, like, hey, what happened with that? And do you still have it? Because I was doing a lot of CDs of classic film scores, which was very much an archival. I was used to in my daily in my life saying, hey, what happened to those recordings or what happened to this project? Do you think we could we could find that and and and, and restore it? Uh, and he said, yeah, I have it. And um, the, it was unencumbered from any of the previous publication attempts. And and uh, Preston hauled it out of the closet. And the, a little fun irony is that I was doing some research work at Paramount at the music department for some CDs. And I brought it over there and I said, hey, can I use your guy's scanner? And I said, sure. And so that, fortunately, it was already no. a photocopy because it didn't have any stuff. It was, I remember I would have remembered if it had stuff cut and pasted because that would have been a problem for the feeder. But it, I just scanned it and then um, had some PDFs and then used, um, you know, one of those OCR reader softwares to mm -hmm. turn it into text. And then there were long stretches where the photocopying was pretty bad. And so it just turns into gobbledygook and, you know, you have to like retype it from scratch. And I did that and it took like a week. Um, but then we got into shape and, and, and Darren helped with some of the, so we had some fact checking and some spelling things to clean up. And, um, well, and if I recall when you had asked about that, the famous artwork yeah, for the, I wanted, for the yes. never published cover 
And I said, oh, I know exactly who has that artwork. Well, well we hoped that you would, because you owned your company at the time, owned, for a period, owned CFQ. And right. I think you had told us the very first thing you looked for was the art from this, but couldn't find it. And the irony is, of course, the person who did own that artwork, I'm looking at right now. It was me. It yeah. was Darren. So Darren very graciously uh, provided the, the cover image from his, his archive. And, and yeah, people were, were really supportive. And, and, and uh, Gene Kozicki, I think, and Jeff Bond helped. Just, you know, you have like some, there was a note from 1979, like from Preston, check the spelling. And it's like, okay, let's do that. And that's like, you know, you're sort of trying to phonetically reconstruct who was this assistant to this person who would have this weird Polish name or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, but we did. And, and um, I'm very proud of how clean it is. Yeah. And uh, I just, I do want to say that how anybody expected this to be a magazine, <laughs> that, that still makes no sense whatsoever. Right. Like a, a 16th of this would be a magazine. Well, as a yeah, matter very of, small print. As a, as a matter of fact, and, and before I say what I'm about to say, I, I, as you've just heard, uh, Lucas was absolutely heroic in what he did. There was no scotch tape on the manuscript I sent him because, of course, I made a photocopy so okay. that he wouldn't have to deal with that. Uh, and uh, Roger Stein, I believe, is the artist's name who uh, did uh, the image uh, that's in back of me. That was S-T-I-N-E. Going to... I'll never forget that. That's right. Uh, he had done the wonderful cover for my Salter it's, issue. The Sephardic spelling, I guess. Yeah. And, and uh, I was always one of the things that I was so wistful about uh, the the uh, thing was never published was that it meant that nobody was going to see this wonderful image uh, because I loved what Roger had done. It was my concept to, to have the uh, big uh, ship bursting out of the small TV screen onto the big uh, screen and he executed it beautifully so when i heard that we could actually put it on the book i was that was just like the, the icing on the cake that was just well that reminds me of a couple of things i do want to say very quickly that, that taylor white at creature features was the publisher and he's the one who stepped up to write some checks because it's not it's not inexpensive to, to print books anymore and so he really took a gamble on that and promoted it and also uh, Joe Sikoriak, who is our art director at Filmscore Monthly and for many oh, other yeah. things, uh, did, the, did the design. Um, and it is all text as people, you know, occasionally complain on the Amazon review. But uh, that, that let us publish it as an, as an unlicensed work of journalism. Right. And I think at one point I called, I knew the CBS Consumer Products licensing people because of our, our Star Trek CDs. I called just to give him a heads up. I'm like, look, you know me and I know you and I just want you to know I'm involved with this book. It's going to be coming out and it's not licensed. We're not going to license it. And I think the woman finally said, Lucas, don't do me any favors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she was very cool. And uh, what I really hoped um, would happen is, in fact, what did happen, which was then after this, our friends Jeff Bond and Gene Kozicki did... um, a licensed making of art book, uh, which which presents a lot of the the, the, the visual materials that would have been in, in, in the CFQ article, and um, and now that this is uh, in public record, it's something that scholars and other authors can refer to and, and quote when when there are so many people who uh, who are gone who now are talking at great length about the movie. And I was just flipping through it as uh, we were waiting to come on. 
And it's, it's just, it's cool. I mean, it's D Kelly talking for like pages about, you know, in a very contemporaneous way about like the little um, thing that Ilea had to wear, you know, the battery drove them nuts. And you just, you actually get a sense of, of, of where they were at and what these people whose, whose, whose work we, we love. Um. Well, Romantis swore he'd never returned to the Starfleet. Just a moment, Captain, sir. I'll explain what happened. Your revered Admiral Nagura invoked a little known, seldom used reserve activation clause. In simpler language, Captain, they drafted me. They didn't. This was your idea. This was your idea, wasn't it? Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Headed this way. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. Badly. Permission to come aboard? Well, Jim, I hear Chapel's an MD now. Well, I'm going to need a top nurse, not a doctor who'll argue every little diagnosis with me. And they probably redesigned the whole sick bay, too. I know engineers, they love to change. Well, what I was going to say is that's very much the case because, of course, you know, these interviews were done in 1978, 1979. And as we know, particularly the Star Trek actors or anyone associated with Star Trek, um, it tends to be a game of telephone. And they go to these conventions and they tell these stories and the stories change over time. You know, and 30, 40 years later, the, 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 uh, the stories they tell for a laugh bear no resemblance whatsoever to what really happened. So it's great to sort of have this primary source, you know, uh, uh, interviewing people actually at the time before they started changing the story. And also their perception of the movie changed. Yeah. You know, um, one of my favorite interjects something here. What I was going to say about the, uh, the point that Lucas raised about how did anybody think this was going to be a double issue of a magazine? Uh, Fred was such an enthusiast for Star Trek, and he was so in love with the material I was sending him. He kept saying, interview more people, give me more interviews. This is fantastic. So that's one reason Wait. why we ended up with 60 interviews instead of 20 for openers. Can I ask Mark, did, um, did Fred really like Star Trek or did he just like that it made money? You know? Fred liked Star Trek, but he liked that it made money more. I mean, <laughs> if you remember in the in the mid '90s, how many Star Trek issues he published, and I, I think you know he get a lot of pushback. But that was right when they were breaking uh, into Walton Books and B. Dalton and a lot of the booksellers. And the one thing that they and obviously in the magazine business you get returns. So you know there'd be issues when he did like the Full Moon issue, for instance. I think probably every copy of that came back. You know, I don't think there was, you know, they sold one, but the amount of advertising I think they got out of, you know, Charlie Band made it worth it. But the Star Trek stuff w was doing incredible. Every time they put out a Star Trek issue, uh, they were selling, you know, a ridiculously amount uh, at retail. Well, they so, had very um, few ads. It was mostly the cover price. Yep. So that's why I'm kind of, except for those ads from Charlie Band, uh, <laughs> which was funded by Paramount. 
because he had Everyone, a down uh, deal with them. Lucas mentioned deserves the uh, credit that he gave them. And I want to mention uh, Kay Millam Anderson, a lady who did six of the interviews when I had the death in the family and had to tend to family business. Uh, and since you, you mentioned telephone, uh, to, um, to c complete my answer to your first question, uh, Mark, I also interviewed some people on the phone, uh, sometimes very much in a hurry. Uh, hello, this is Mr. Nimoy's secretary. Can you talk to him now? So quickly, you set up the machinery and so on. And some people I would talk to on the sets of whatever movies they were working on at the time that I did reach them. And after everybody could breathe easily and the picture was in the can, I got to talk to a lot of the effects people at the still existed facilities uh, where they had done all that effects work. That's one of the that's one of the things that I was so pleased to read about is that the vast amount of different kinds of people talking about the movie that you never get to hear from, certainly not at the same time that they're doing it. Um, and I found that absolutely fascinating because the, the fact that no one really knows what the party line is and no one really knows what to think about the project that they're working on yet because they're in the thick of it and they haven't been, they haven't been coached or anything uh, as to what to say and what not to say. You probably couldn't ever do this kind of a project again because now everything no, is you so... Commandeered and orchestrated yeah. by the powers that be. No, you would never NBA get that kind of access. It's like you're in a communist uh, European country uh, talking to the uh, common turn. With, no, the business is completely changed. At the door. You mentioned Kay Anderson, and Kay, of course, followed your lead and did a wonderful cover story on Star Trek II for Fred. Fred never repeated that mistake. Uh, that he did with Star Trek The Motion Picture because infamously the black hole issue bombed for him and, and he always said I made a huge mistake. He acknowledged he made a huge mistake but you know then uh, his Star Trek 2 and his Star Trek 3 uh, issues did very well and uh, Star Trek 2 he actually did uh, a, a shared cover with uh, Blade Runner and then right. for I think Star Trek 3 he did one or 4 he did one that covered 2, 3 and 4 which was another sensational issue uh of uh of cinefantastic i remember it being orange a, it was orange yeah the second yeah that was orange the it's amazing what you remember from when you were 12 yeah no i mean i and and at some point we got to go back and do an episode about cinefantastic um because there's so many great stories and uh you know it was obviously such a seminal seminal magazine um but uh i want to ask you uh you mentioned you know obviously the special effects people um what was what was your experience uh, with Robert Wise like? Uh, you know, to, to a fault, everyone says he's one of the nicest guys in the history of Hollywood. Uh, did you get a lot of time with Bob Wise? You know, what was at that point? He was exhausted, obviously, physically and emotionally. What was that experience like? And what what was your impressions? I had uh, two interviews with him, if I recall correctly. Uh, I might have had uh, a follow up question or two on the phone uh, as well. Uh, I. Uh, can't uh, speak highly enough of him. Uh, w when I had my first meeting, as I say, they were still frantically racing to get the picture done in time. And I remember asking him, uh, point blank, well, are you guys going to make it? <laughs> and uh, he uh, said, just by the skin mm. of our teeth. 
And uh, in retrospect, it's only because he was at the helm that they did do it by the skin of their teeth. If anybody else with, uh, who didn't have his experiences, his professionalism, uh, his humanity, uh, his uh, skills, I don't, I can't really say for certain that Paramount would have had a motion picture to open on December 7th in 1979. And uh, as uh, I, as you've read in the book, um, uh, at the uh, grand opening the night before it opened worldwide, it had its premiere at NASA on the evening of the 6th. And uh, Wise came over to um, the uh, gentleman who wrote the, uh, the screenplay, um, and having a senior moment. Uh, uh, Harold Livingston. Thank you, yes. And um, he said, uh, and I'll have to clean this up maybe a little bit, he said, we were effing lucky. We were effing lucky. Yeah. That's how close they came to not. He has my favorite quote in the book, which was someone, when you you or somebody said, mentioned that they would like, 2001 was famous for people smoking pot. Oh, that was that was Harold Livingston. Yeah, and he said, "Well, if they smoke pot with this one, they'll stop smoking pot." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanna, it's funny you mentioned Harold Livingston. I want to ask you about that because obviously there was a lot of antipathy between Gene Roddenberry and Harold Livingston, and a lot of you know fi- fighting over drafts and and whose draft would you know whose whose uh, scenes would get filmed, go before the camera. How, how much of that were you able to, uh, to parse? And, and uh, also, you know, h- how do you get to the truth? Because so much of it is like Rashomon, uh, you know, and it's famously later on, you know, you talk to the cast and they're like, yeah, we're getting a rewrite at three o'clock from Harold and at 3.30 it would be uh, from Gene and then four o'clock it would be from Harold and 4.30 it would be from Gene again. And well, nobody knew well, what to make of it. I can only tell you that I saw the physical artifact which uh, encapsulated that whole uh, debacle experience in the form of the shooting script. As you well know, uh, when a page or more of a script is revised, it's printed on colored paper and they put the date on the top right hand corner of that revision. And uh, the script that I was able to finally obtain it was like Finian's rainbow. There were a zillion colors on every page. Yeah. And at the top where it said the date, it wouldn't only say the date, it would say the time of day it had been revised because it wouldn't be the only revision for that particular date. And uh, so there were not only uh, the, the uh, writers, uh, Mr. Livingston and Mr. Roddenberry, there were also meetings, story conferences involving the lead actors. There was a lot of input uh, going every which way. Um, uh, so I can only say that uh, like <laughs> every uh, movie made only in spades, this was a collaborative effort. Swinging back well, a little bit to uh, Robert Wise, um, I got to know him about 20 years later uh, working on the director's edition. And this was yes, basically... a wonderful job, by the way. Oh, I, I, I was uh, very grateful to have been a part of it. Um, it a shout out to David C. Fine. Absolutely. And, and Mike Medicino, who, uh, the three-headed monster we were. Um, the thing is that Robert Wise would not talk about this movie 18 years after it came out. Uh, you were basically, until that time, the last person to talk with him about it 
because of his experience on the production and the uh, the pressures and the deadlines and the fact that he didn't you know get a full post-production time on the film that they basically released a rough cut and he wouldn't talk about it because he it, he used to say it was the only one that got away well i can i can well believe that i'm glad it's like i'm hearing another piece of the puzzle from you uh it's, so i there's always more to learn even after you finish a book. Uh, Joe Adamson, who wrote a great book about the Marx Brothers, I met him when I did my Night of the Hunter book. He said a great way to start researching a book of movie history is to get it published. <laughs> Everybody comes out of the woodwork and tells you things you wish you had known right. at the when you were time. writing it. Yeah. Bear in mind that this was unique in uh, Wise's career at that time. Uh, for, again, it goes back to the very first days because it was not a Robert Wise production, which is right. what we've been doing nothing but for the long time. He was uh, a gun for hire. He yeah. was the highly prized, uh, the most sought after gun. He was the first uh, person and the only one they offered the job to. Uh, but uh, it was not a Robert Wise production, so there were other forces that he had to contend with, which he never did before, right. including the uh, he and Roddenberry both begged the studio not to keep them locked into that December 7th date. They right. said, we can give you th this kind of a picture if we have to have it released then, but we can give you this kind of a picture if you give us a few more weeks if you give us a few more months, we can give you even better a picture. But uh, it, the bottom line was the bottom line in Paramount. It was, it was locked down, and the uh, exhibitors threatened to sue the, the company if they didn't have the movie in the theaters on that date. That's the bottom line factor. Yeah. As I said, they would have been out millions and millions of dollars otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So after spending all this time uh, on this article, uh, researching, interviewing, uh, preparing it, turning it into Fred. Um, when you finally saw the movie, what was your feeling about the movie when you, after, you know, you sort of lived, breathed, and ate it for all these months? I actually have uh, on a few audio cassettes the, uh, the audience reaction. I took my machine in with me uh, so I could hear people applauding and laughing and re reacting uh, to it. Um, well, I knew, having read the various scripts, uh, I knew uh, the basic outline of the story, so that uh, I can't say I was surprised or disappointed uh, one way or the other. Um, I, uh, I, I felt like I would, had been a member of the family, having spoken to all of these people who had worked so hard uh, on making it good. So it was almost like a picture that I had. It was the way I felt when I saw The Swimmer, the very first movie I worked on as a lowly gopher. Uh, I had no perspective on it because I, uh, I just knew how hard everybody worked on it. And only in the passing of years was I able to appreciate that picture. You asked me what surprised me in reading my manuscript. I'll tell you what surprised me when my book was announced. And that was how well regarded by some people uh, the film is that over uh, the years, a lot of people have really come to love it. And uh, I, uh, as I told uh, the editor of Infinity Magazine, he interviewed me a few months ago about uh, my book and about the movie. Uh, 
I was really very touched to discover this uh, uh, because I knew how hard everybody had worked to make it a good picture. So I'm glad that, uh, that there's some love out there for it. At, at the well, time, I was only aware of uh, all of the, uh, the the standard criticisms we're all familiar with: Star Trek, the motionless picture, and uh, and and so. And a lot of those, a lot of those were started by the actors themselves, mostly Leonard Nimoy, because of his reaction to his great scenes that were left out of the theatrical edition. I should have known. Were you right about feature? A life form of its own. A conscious living entity. A living machine? It considers the Enterprise a living machine. That's why the probe refers to our ship as an entity. I saw Beatrice Planet. A planet populated by living machines. Unbelievable technology. Beatrice has knowledge that spans this universe. And yet. With all its pure logic, Major is barren, cold, no mystery, no beauty. so angry he he cornered the editor uh, on the night of the uh, uh, preview screening in Washington DC and he was he was screaming at him uh, that uh, you know all these great Spock moments were simply gone because of the restrictions of having that cut to be done on that date and um, luckily later on when we did the director's edition and reincorporated all those scenes um, he uh, he was he was very glad and he was uh, very grateful that it had happened. Which well, is, as a, ma which as is a matter good. of fact, when I did see the picture that uh, first morning, I was aware of a lot of those moments because I had read the script, and that was one thing that I did feel uh, was a, a drawback uh, for my enjoyment of the picture. And so, all the more reason why I was one of the people who was so glad uh, when you guys did. Uh, the director's cut and restored a lot of those moments, which I knew. Uh, I mean, some of those lines uh, were like uh, the the punchline of the of the whole story. It's the core. It's the core meaning of the movie. It's the entire meaning of the movie that was cut out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It must have been very gratifying thirty years later to finally have this this article finally published i mean i i can't imagine and 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 the the response because uh, you know in the what is it lucas like 10 years since the book came out eight years since the book came um, out and, i'd have to check yeah, okay well but, 
it, we we published it in 2014, which is okay. Seven. So yeah. so about six years, and uh, and now the Kindle version just came out. The digital version just came out as well. So, um, but it must be very gratifying for you because this was, you know, you, you put all that work into something, and you know, look, this wasn't the only article that Fred, you know, held on to in his files and never published, but it's certainly the most famous and the most uh, um, most significant. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to be clamoring for my time tracks article that he never ran. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, it must be very, very gratifying to you to know that this is finally out there and that people have read the article and, 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 and responded so positively to it. Uh, I, I, <laughs> when you're right, you're right, Mark. I certainly am gratified and heartwarmed. It was not only a lot of work, it was a lot of work done at an emotional time in my life with uh, the death of my mother and, and so on. And I always uh, tried to make it something special, what I call a montage of memories, not just a series of questions and answers with individual people. And uh, so I'm very glad that uh, it's being read as such and appreciated as such. And that's uh, why uh, my uh, two guardian angel heroes are Lucas and Taylor White. <laughs> Was it better than winning the pyramid? <laughs> you won the pyramid. You, you won uh, the $100,000 pyramid, or what was it when you won? I came to California on a grant, as I like to call it, from the $10,000 pyramid. <laughs> I was one of the first persons to win on the show in 1973. And in 1974, after uh, paying uh, my taxes and a lot of family uh, debts, I took what was left and uh, came out uh, here. This will tell you something about inflation. After spending a thousand and a half of it on taxes and paying for a lot of family bills, what I brought with me, I was able to live on for another year or two uh, in those days. Um, things an author might say. <laughs> One other thing. <laughs> oh, I, oh, what did he say? That, uh, things an author might say. Oh, <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, just as you can go online and read about the Star Trek book that never was and thank God finally is, you can read about my adventure on the $10,000 pyramid. Uh -huh. If you Google Preston Jones, $10,000 pyramid, you can read a, a piece that I wrote, uh, which is uh, kind of suspenseful and humorous and exciting. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense because you certainly couldn't live off what Fred Clark was paying you. So, um, uh, Lucas, I understand that the, the, the Star Trek The Motion Picture Scholarship continues that you've yes, recently unearthed something significant yes, that you wanted to share. I've been authorized to share this. So there is a, a, a book publishing company called OmniScore, Omni Music Publishing? He's going to hate me. Omni Music Publishing. And they publish bound books of film scores. And they've done, um, they've done Batman and Total Recall and uh, Basic Instinct and The Wizard of Oz, you know, little movies. Ghostbusters, Silverado, The Matrix, and if you're a big music nerd, it's the, the the orchestrations. I mean, the way you would be able to buy The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky and look at all the notes. Now you can finally look at all the notes for, for Jerry Goldsmith's Total Recall, and he's doing Star Trek motion picture, and it's going to be fantastic. Um, you got to read music to really get the most out of it, but he puts it in concert pitch, and it's all laid out, and so it's all readable, and, and it's... Uh, it's like the keys to the kingdom if you're if you're a music nerd. That's amazing. Um, 
And he found uh, in the process of doing this from the Paramount Archives, the proprietor, Tim Rodier, um, they found some cues. He sent them to me and said, hey, I couldn't find this on the CD. What is this? And it's, it was unrecorded orchestrations that, that cues that were written and orchestrated but never recorded because the movie was changing so rapidly it didn't make sense to record them. Well, let's break out the the sequencers and do those and release them. That was my first thought. (laughs) There's an early version of the meld. There's an early version of Total Logic. And there's a completely different version of the the overture, which is the Ilea's theme, the love theme, uh, but it was orchestrated and arranged by Fred Steiner Wow. Instead of Ian Frazier. So it, it, I've, I've looked it over and noodled some things out. And, you know, it's still Ilea's theme, but it's a different setting. Huh. And so he'll a little, less, a little less piano forward. Well, the score uh, is masterpiece. It has a piano part, but it's uh, in, instead of the one you know, it goes da 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 It's a different figure. Wow. The score deserves this treatment. It's a masterpiece. One of my few regrets yeah. is that I never contacted Jerry Goldsmith the night after the Oscars and said you was robbed. Uh, he was robbed. Yeah. A little it's, romance. Does anybody yeah. remember that score? No. Well, no. With all, I the the. It's a shame because Georges Delarue was a wonderful composer, but this was not his finest score, and a third of it was. Uh, Vivaldi to begin with, uh, and uh, so I'll never understand. Uh, well, anyway, they didn't even use that music for a little romance. The next generation, I don't understand. <laughs> it couldn't have been that good. So, anyway, well, listen, this was an absolute pleasure having you to discuss your book, Return to Tomorrow. Um, so, Lucas, I, I, I understand. So, the, the paperback edition is out of print now. It was a limited you edition. Find, you can find used copies. Um, used copies, but the best way to get it now is digital. And it's, yes, and sorry, Preston. And who knows what the future holds in store? The manuscript disappeared. Uh, anything can happen. Well, I <laughs> Return to tomorrow, too. I recommend the Kindle version because um, if nothing else, it's searchable. It's such a huge book, right. and uh, we just didn't have the 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 manpower to do a proper index. But when you have the Kindle version, you can actually type that keyword of that thing that you're trying to remember somebody said, and he brings you right to the page. Well, I certainly didn't want to disparage the Kindle version. I'm very happy that that's out there. And it means that more people are getting to read and appreciate it. And it's 10 bucks. Come on, 10 bucks. Money well spent. And a lot of people wanted the Kindle version uh, right in 2014. So uh, a lot of people, I assume, are being made happy by this release. Yeah, they hope so. They needed to hold that back to make sure the physical, you know, nobody wants a pallet of unsold books, but the, the physical books sold very well. And now we've done the, the digital version and um, you know, everybody's happy. Uh, Lucas, you have done an amazing job carrying on the legacy of the original Star Trek, both with um, uh, working with La La Land on, you know, getting the uh, original soundtrack collection to market, you know, one of the great soundtrack collections of all time. And, of course, uh, uh, with Taylor White bringing this book uh, out and just uh, looking out for the legacy of the original Star Trek and, and uh, uh, you know, encouraging Jeff Bond to have a career in writing so he would actually write his that marvelous Star Trek The Motion Picture book. I'm sure he'd be sitting at home uh, still working at a bank if it hadn't been for you. So Thank kudos you. to you for... 
get him to move from Ohio and come out to Los Angeles. And well, uh, already my hero for all of the wonderful soundtrack albums he produced. And of course, uh, that goes without saying, uh, the amazing, amazing, uh, just hundreds of incredible soundtrack albums that you put out under Film Score Monthly um, that other people have really he reissued subsequently, but it was you who did it for the first time. Hey, can, and... I plug my, um, can I plug my precious 15-minute short film? Uh, of course, go ahead. Uh, I made a, a sci-fi short that was crowdfunded, and um, it's called Sky Fighter, two words, and if you just look at YouTube, it was um, released by Dust, which is a sci-fi shorts channel, and uh, it's got a million views, so uh, better, better than nothing, and... and uh, I, I, I've had so much fun. It's been such a privilege to do all the Star Trek stuff, but it's, it sort of made me into like, what am I, a Star Trek curator? So I didn't know what else to do. Well, I'm still hoping for Opus 2. And I was proud to be one of the crowd funders crowd. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you guys. Preston, thank you so much. Lucas, great to have you on the show again. And here on the 41st anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture, the human adventure is truly just beginning. So thank you, guys. Thank you. It's been great spending time with you guys. Great. That was, uh, that was an interesting conversation with Preston and Lucas. It was some interesting facts. It was, it was facts. The, one that, the one that got away. You know. What do you mean? The, the original issue never Oh, happened. yes. Yeah, and it's amazing. It you know resurfaced after all those years, which is a, truly an amazing story. And the great thing about the Kindle edition is the book has been reduced to data patterns, <laughs> preserved in perfect detail. Yeah, stored in every detail in a Kindle. That's hysterical. <laughs> that is it's so true. It's so true. I, I look. I and I, I you know. Um, it's interesting because like like my um, books, it's written in the oral history format, which is a format I absolutely adore. And um, what's great on Kindle is you can skip around. Uh, so if you you know you want to see all the stuff that Bill Shatner had to say or Leonard said or D or, or if you're more interested in the writing or you're more interested in the visual effects, you can really um, you know the sound design. So it, it, it's great to have that as an archival format. I'm a big fan of the book. I got the book. I, I you know if you can, I definitely recommend it for ten dollars. You're crazy if you don't get it. It's like that. You absolutely if you're a Star Trek the motion picture fan, you absolutely should get it. Well, it's a really thing, terrific book. One thing that I'm sad about is that. Um, there isn't a an audiobook version of it because that would be an incredible listen. And I'm just going to put this out here: if if Lucas uh, wants to do an audiobook version, I want to help. So, so there. Oh, that's great! You should. I think that would. You be could amazing. do all the Gene Roddenberry passages and everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> you can do all the parts. <laughs> That, that's a great idea. I think, Lucas, if you're still listening, if you didn't turn off the podcast after you were done, uh, which you probably did, uh, Darren just offered to uh, do the um, doing audiobook all, for you. Doing all the parts is the height of hubris, but uh, I think I can. I think I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, 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 could, I could read Harold Livingston. I could play a crotchety I Jew. think that would be great. I, I, I do Harold Livingston. Fuck Roddenberry. God damn it, motherfucker. <laughs> you're, you're high. <laughs> Hell, Katzenberg brought me into his office. He locked the door and he said, I'm not going to let you leave until you agree to rewrite this piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) 
in answer to your query at the beginning of the uh, podcast, uh, as oh yes, I was the curious fate, the fate of the director's edition of Star Trek: The Motion Insatiable Curiosity that we that we uh, that we did for uh, DVD all those twenty years ago. Um, the good news is they haven't said no. The bad news we is they're going anyway. They haven't said yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but. Yeah. You know, there, ha- there has never been a non-positive word said by the studio at this point. And, you know, things are moving into place. That's, that's great. all I can say. So it, That's great. It, Look, like, that's all you can say. That's all you should say. Some people, it's best to keep your mouth shut when right. things are in this fragile state. So I think well, that that's... Well, Captain Kirk, I promise you we're not finished yet. I, I will tell you this, that uh, when you see, like, the Snyder Cut... And all this nonsense. Sorry, Peter. Be you know being made. You know of money being thrown around. It's like with Paramount launching a streaming dollars. platform. What? Seventy million dollars. Seventy million dollars. They can afford the twelve cents they need to spend to do the director's edition. I would the edition so. of Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which I think you know. And look, the reality is, and I, I hope they won't wait this long. You know, the fiftieth anniversary is coming. <laughs> And uh, we do it I hope they'll do it considerably sooner than that. But, um, but uh, you know, there's never been a better time. And, uh, you know, it, look, you know, do it while you still have, you know, the, the, the cast is some of the cast is still with us. And, um, um, you know, it's just a movie that I really do sense. I don't know if, if because we're in this tunnel, but I do sense that there's a newfound appreciation for the Star Trek, the motion picture. The thing about Star Trek, the motion picture is that you can argue back and forth about if they were successful in their goals, but they had goals and they were shooting at something way higher than any of the other films have ever aimed at. And, you know, they were, you know, they were moderately successful at it. And, you know, the director edition brings it even closer. So it's uh, it's just something that I've always loved and uh, it, it deserves better. And I've said it before, you know, it's probably the Star Trek film that if I, I'm just want to sit back and I got nothing to watch, I want to throw in a Star Trek movie, it's going to be the Star Trek movie I watch, even more than Khan. I mean, yeah. Khan may just be because I've seen it so many times, but... Um, but I just enjoy watching Star Trek the most, especially that first hour. Yes. I just love to watch it. I never get tired of it. Yeah. I love it. And and I enjoy watching it, and it's cerebral, and it's smart, and it's real Star Trek. Yeah. With real Star Trek characters and a real Star Trek um, dilemma. Take that how you will. But it is. And, uh, it's a, it's, it's, and it's a beautiful cinematic film. Yeah. And... Uh, so anyway, I, I hope you were successful in your quest to uh, um, bring the director's edition to fruition <laughs> once again. I'm delighted. Spock, did we just see the beginning of a new life form? Yes, Captain. We witnessed a birth. Possibly a next step in our evolution. I wonder. Well, it's been a long time since I delivered a baby. And I hope we got this one off to a good start. I hope so, too. I think we gave it the ability to create its own sense of purpose. Out of our own human weaknesses. And the drive that compels us to overcome them. And a lot of foolish human emotions, right, Mr. Spock? Quite true, Doctor. 
Unfortunately, it will have to deal with them as well. A derogative from Starfleet. They're requesting damage and injury reports and complete vessel status. Report two casualties. Lieutenant Ilea. Captain Decker. Aye, sir. Correction. They're not casualties. They are... List them as missing. Vessel status fully operational. Aye, sir. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. Aye. We can have you back on Vulcan in four days, Mr. Spock. Unnecessary, Mr. Scott. My task on Vulcan is completed. Mr. Sulu, ahead warp one. Warp one, sir. Heading, sir. That away. So anyway, um, this is fun as always talking about Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, if you're a fan of this podcast. Uh, I hope you listen to us every Friday night at 10, where we uh, drop new episodes of Inglorious Trexperts, or you can watch it even better on the the Electric Now app, the Electric Now app, uh, where you can uh, stream uh, podcasts from the Electric Surge Network, including Inglorious Trexperts, The Rebel and the Rogue, The 430 Movie, which we have to go and record right now, and uh, uh, The Best Movies Never Made. And a special thanks to Bill Ritter, who continues to make us sound so good, even over Zoom. Our producer, Natalie Miscali, our production coordinator, Peter Holmstrom, and our production assistant, Zach Raggetts. So all of you, thank you very much. And thank you to our audience. And, uh, you know, last week we asked you for ideas for new episodes, what you like, what you don't like. Thanks for reaching out on Twitter, which is... um, at Inglorious Trek or Instagram and Inglorious Trexperts, a bunch of wonderful ideas, a few not so great ideas, but mostly good ideas. And uh, we're very grateful. And also very grateful for your encouragement to keep doing these, because I know we've said in the past that, you know, we are tired, but... Uh, That's not really true. But, if we were tired, you know we what? Yeah, but, but, you know, but, but we, uh, you know, your encouragement and your love for the show gives us the the drive and the the enthusiasm to continue the mission so uh thank you and as i've said before if not us who so anyway it's true sorry if that sounds narcissistic it's true no that's who on who ha ha but uh but you know i think it's important that we keep turning over these rocks to find these people who wouldn't get the spotlight otherwise that we can you know and i know uh uh, we'll, we'll save this for next time, but Herb Solo passed away yep. uh, this week, and uh, I think that warrants further discussion. He's a very polarizing character in Star Trek lore. I have some interesting stories about him, but I'm not going to share them now. But come on down next time to an all-new <laughs> Inglorious Trek, where we'll talk about all new subjects. I don't know what, but we'll talk about them. So until then, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Engage.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.